The next chapter with Prim's Ripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. Today, we continue our best of series as we re-air some oldies of the next chapter. And for some of my newer listeners out there, I'm excited that this is going to give you the opportunity to just dive into some really great content that you might have missed. And while you are diving into this best of series, I will not be taking a break, but I will be grinding on season three of the next chapter so please stay tuned. Today, we are going to re-air my interview with former NBA player and number one overall pick, Greg Oden. During this two-hour-plus-long conversation, we unpacked not just the highs of his pro basketball career, but really dive into all the lows he endured. Injuries, seven surgeries, being labeled a bust, uh, substance abuse, depression, trying to figure out his life purpose after sport, we really get into it all. And I was so, so deeply grateful that Greg was courageous enough to open up about his journey and with me, truly. Really hope you enjoy today's best of episode. So without further ado, here's my Greg Oden conversation. a warmer welcome, but it snowed last night. What is up? This is, at the time of this taping, it's in the middle of November, early November, actually, Mm -hmm. and it snowed, and it kind of wreaked a little havoc everywhere. Yes, because I was wearing shorts earlier in the day yesterday, so, (laughs) yeah, a little, little colder today. Uh, But you and I were texting back and forth, and I was like, hey, you know, I want to make it as comfortable and fun as possible for you, and so you... I was like, hey, how about some donuts? Yes. So I went across the street, got some Buckeye donuts. Apparently, that's like the big thing here at Ohio State. Well, first off, first class service. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you didn't have to. and uh, I wanted to. I, this is probably my second time actually having Buckeye donuts, and I've still never been in there. Are you serious? It's literally right across the street. Yeah, but there's literally no parking. That's true. Yeah, but but we also mentioned that um, you like you're a Krispy Kreme guy. I am uh, just original glaze and <laughs> raspberry filled glaze. I am good. You're a simple guy, yeah. Because I I didn't know your taste, so I I'm kind of a I like colorful stuff. So I got like the chocolate one with sprinkles. I got this crazy huge one. It was like the maple bacon. There's two yes. slices of bacon on there. Are you going to eat that? Um, you know what? I may give it to Josh. We're going to meet up with oh, Josh Perry, uh, another Ohio State <laughs> alum. He's a football guy. Like yeah. He looks like a dude that might like crush that maple bacon donut. Yeah, but you know, when those guys stop playing, they get skinny. You know, So he might <laughs> not, not all want them. all them. Not calorie- all of them. Yeah, you're right. But <laughs> with football, I, I've noticed that a lot of football players, especially like the O-linemen, they don't need all those calories. Yes. And the defensive backs, they're not lifting like that. So they get True. a little bit skinnier. But they basketball do. players, we run so much that when we <laughs> stop playing, it's just like... 
the weight's coming. I feel like there's no excuse because you guys are so tall. Like me sitting at 5'2", mm-hmm. if I have a little bit, anything that's off my my typical diet, it, yeah. it kind of shows. But you, you know, you being really like tall and stretched out, I feel like you can stretch out any weight that comes on. You, you can stretch it out, but that doesn't mean the weight's not there. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I look lean, but I'm close to 300, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, but it's funny, when you when you went for the donuts and you went for the simple glaze, mm-hmm. you were not attracted to any of the colorful, you know, kind of like big-time donuts. Is that is that an indication of your personality at all? Um, I would like to say so, but you it's more of an so. indication of just my taste buds. Your taste. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big chocolate guy. Mm. Um, sprinkles, all that extra stuff. No, I just like the sweet, sugary, straight to the point. I don't mm. need the extra stuff. So I guess um, that is kind of a little take on my personality. Yeah, I mean, if you think about other aspects of of your life, whether it's like fashion or clothing or how you live your life. I'm too big to be out there, crazy colors. But I do like the fact that the pants nowadays are a little short because no pants fit me at all. So, you know, the high water (laughs) pants that's in style, I'm like, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) You like the high water situation? I do, actually. (laughs) Really? That's funny. Um, well, it's so great to connect with you again, and uh, I got a chance, we got a chance to to meet one another and work with one another earlier this year at an OSU, your alma mater. They were having a, a what they call a sports and society panel, and it talked about what happens to athletes when sport is no longer a part of their life, and it was like this all-day affair. They had multiple panels, and ours was the last one. It was you, myself. Uh, Joshua Perry, uh, former Ohio State football player, also played in the NFL. Monica, I believe yes. her name, last name was Vasquez. Yes. She was a synchronized swimmer. That was really cool to hear her experience. And then Dr. Steve Grafe. Yes. Who also, he, he played football, but um, is a sports psychologist now. And I was the only non guy. I didn't realize I that know, until that I got weird. there. That was awkward. But, you thought that was weird? <laughs> but you are a blue devil. Wait, right? Yeah. yeah you yeah, are a yeah, blue yeah. devil. And one thing I have learned through my travels is Duke alums get in any door. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, they do. Why do you say that? You guys are you... everywhere. <laughs> I've uh, played with Josh Rick Roberts yeah. and um, Shavlik Randolph. Yeah. And between those two, I can possibly meet anybody I want to in life. That is comical. I do remember. Oh, and Shane Battier. So, yes. I mean, well, Shane. I mean, just Shane's Shane. Yeah. yeah. That guy does not mess around. He's got, he's, he's just not, a stand-up guy. He really is. Yeah. Um, but that that panel was so important. I had never seen a university or any athletic department um, hold something like that. Oh, and it was essentially. I, I haven't at least not not yet. I'm sure there's somebody mm-hmm. doing that, but it was really cool to see um, a school that's so big, especially in that athletic space. Mm-hmm. But doing taking the extra effort to prepare their student athletes for for life afterwards. I mean, it was a really good panel, and I think it was something that could benefit by the athletes actually. Mm-hmm 
being there to see something like that. I mean, um, it was a couple of students who were athletes in there, but I think, you know, just the majority of athletes, if they had a chance to look at something like that, especially in college, because, you know, you, at that time you're looking at, you're going to be playing your sport for the rest of your life. And you don't think about, you know, something can happen tomorrow um, or while I'm in school that, you know, you have to prepare for that next chapter of life. Mm-hmm. How, um, had you done anything like that before? Uh, before that? No, yeah. not, um, talking about it or, that was my first time just being open, honest, and candid yeah. about just the struggles that I've been through with my transition away from playing basketball. Really? So that was your your really first moment taking the time to open up about everything, your basketball journey, your life journey? Like I've done interviews yeah. and spoke about some of my struggles, but that uh, being on the panel and talking in front of people and, and actually you know, word for word, going about the struggles and the connection of me transitioning to where my mind was at that time. Uh, that was the first time I got a chance to do that in front of people live. You're amazing. I mean, you you talked very candidly about everything that you you. you had been through. Um, and, and you're right. I've seen bits and pieces where people have done multiple stories on you. A lot mm-hmm. of it's on your basketball journey, and some of it might be related to your personal stuff. But I don't think I've seen a video interview or anything, at least not yet, yeah. of you um, talking about this stuff. Do you, do you get media requests uh um, frequently, often, or how how often do people reach out? Uh, I'm getting a lot more emails nowadays really? about um, a couple of podcasts and just trying to be smart about which ones I'm doing and, uh, you know, just not trying to do everything in that jumps because I want some time to myself, sure. time with the family, you know. Yeah. But I am happy and I jumped at this chance to do your podcast. So. Thank you, Greg. Why? I guess uh, there's been a few athletes that I've <clears throat> that I've gotten a chance to, to sit down with. I mean, there, there's been about 20 of them so far. And certain athletes I know are more private and more introverted. And I, I am honored and flattered that anybody would want to take the time to open up because it's just not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing for, for me either. But I, I'm at a point in my life where I am – I realize who I am and I've healed from my pains and I can talk about them now. But, you know, for the, those players that I know that are more private and they're, they have the courage to come down, come down here and sit with me. I do ask a question like, why, you know, like what, what allowed you to come here today to, you know, talk about whatever we're going to talk about today? Um, well, first it was you because we did have a conversation um, back when we did the panel and, um, you know, I, I told you that I would because we had a similar experience um, with uh, us leaving our sport. Um, but also, I've lived it. Like, I, I guess I was kind of looked at as more of a private guy as well when I was playing. But that's because, you know, you wanted to ask me just about basketball. I was never really asked about my personal life or how I felt about certain situations. And when you think about that, when you're playing the sport, you know, a lot of people don't really look into you at that time. They're always worried about what you're doing in your sport right now. They don't really worry about the 
person you are or kind of how you feel in certain situations in life. And right now, like, I lived it. A lot of this stuff, you know, it happened in the past. It's not like it's going to change. There's nothing I can say that's going to make my experience any different. So I just kind of own it and own the path that I've taken to get right here now. So that's why I'm so open and candid about, you know, the experiences I went through. Um, if I can help somebody make a better decision or if I just inspire somebody to be better in one part of their lives, um, I would definitely tell my story and my struggles that I've been through. That's awesome that you own it. And not everybody, depending on when you ask somebody, not everybody, including myself, is able to own their story. Um, it takes a lot of reflection. It takes a lot of healing as well. And it sounds like you're I mean, it would make sense in, in the best place that you've ever been in your life. Would that be a fair question? Or I mean, I'm statement? good. I'm happy. You know, <laughs> I'm graduated. Uh, I got a beautiful Congratulations. Wife. Yeah, you, you just graduated this year, yes, right? Yes, in May. Um, I would love to say it was a unique thing. I guess it was for me. But yeah. then uh, it was the biggest graduating class in the history of Ohio State. So uh, No way. Yeah, I was part of that. I mean... The Maybe most you, people you were to that graduate. one. It was like, yeah. how big was your class? Uh, I wanna Do you remember? I want to say it was 19,000. That's the number. So it was like 19,001 19, because of you. Yeah, we're going to say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it was it was a great experience. Like, I talk about when I finally went down the tunnel. You know, it was like, like right when we got to the end, I started doing my little shake. And I was, <laughs> I sprinted like three steps and was like, I felt like I was on the football team, you know, but it, so it was cool. good. That's awesome. Uh, what a cool experience. Congratulations. And you, you majored in something in sports, right? Sports uh, industry? Sport industry, yes. Very cool. You know, Bachelor of Education in Sport Industry. That's very cool. Yeah. I mean, like, so, you know, in, in the process of doing these interviews, we're going to launch the show in a couple of months. But I think that the one message I want to send, especially with your story in mind, is I know I might get the question of, like, what made your interviews different? And I think the one thing that I would say to them is reporters and journalists and this is not to say anything, this is not like an indictment or anything good or bad about what anybody is doing because everybody has their beat, as you know. They'll come in with a certain angle. And as people in sports, you are often, you have to talk about what's going on in the game or the, mm -hmm. someone's performance. But I think the one thing that I would say to them is like, in order to get different answers, you have to talk. There's a, there's a person behind the frame, the shield, mm -hmm. the image of the athlete. And that's important to me and maybe... Maybe my perspective is a little different because I've been through it, you know, um, and I, I'm excited to hear, to learn more about your story because I think we have, you know, I mentioned to you before the interview that I've got like all these notes, yeah. but it, it's only because your basketball career is so intricate and, and very complex. There's a lot of huge events going on and it's hard to to kind of grasp everything that, that went down. And for me, I become obsessed with timelines. So mm -hmm. that way I'm able to like, it's like everyone's life is like a puzzle, yeah. right? But I'm going to present those timelines, but it's your platform to kind of like fill in the gaps and color, color this color book, you know? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's your story, you know what I mean? And I want to, I want to make sure I, I ask different questions and questions that people have never asked before. And I think that, that will give people a, 
a better understanding of of who you are mm. as a basketball player and, and also a person you know well i appreciate that opportunity <laughs> um and i hope it does um i'm wherever you want to start from i guess so and i mean I'm i'll excited. ask you a, like a you know like who is have you asked yourself the question who is greg odin I've actually recently been working on that. Yeah. Um, it's crazy because when I was in school, I kind of, I felt like I halted a lot of my life and that was a lot of my transition period because, you know, for all I knew was playing basketball, playing basketball. And then when I finally retired um, after Miami and after I played a year in China, um, I was really lost and kind of had no idea where I wanted to go. And um, I say this again, thank Coach Stad Mata. You know, he, he picked up that phone and he gave me a call and me and him talked for a while. And that was a conversation I really needed to have because I had no direction at that time. Um, it was a lot of alcohol abuse. Um, it was a lot at the time smoking a lot of weed. and I just didn't really know what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, and Coach Mata, I started coming to practices and then I finally enrolled in summer school, and then I was a student manager with the team while taking full time. And I did that three years. Um, and while I was doing that, I was kind of like, you know, just get school done. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I did, you know, uh, have a daughter and got married, but that's a lot going on. That's not easy is. to go to school with a family and daughter. And uh, my wife was a, a saint for putting up. And I'm like, grown man, like, yeah, I, I got class. And she's like, wait, we got this stuff to do. We got this baby to yeah. take care of. And she's like, I got work. And I'm like, it's- yeah, I got class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, that was, uh, I'm thankful to her for the strength that she had, you know, to be there with me. Um, but I'm a different type of dude. I'm, I'm a schedule, like, tell me what I need to do first, A, B, C. Give me that list, and I can go down the list and do it. But I'm always a guy, like, you got to do A before you move to B. You know, so for me, it was like, get this school and then get this degree. And then, you know, figure out what you're going to do um, outside of that. So now I kind of feel like I'm opening up my eyes to all these different opportunities to, you know, do some motivational speaking, to help out in the community, to, you know, be a mentor to some kids and also be a better husband and father, you know, and provide for my family as well. Be more educated and stuff that, you know, my finances, you know, just uh, things uh, around my life and, and my affairs, you know, that when you're playing and you're getting checks, you don't even think about it. You're like, I got a guy to handle that. But now I'm grown yeah. and I'm like, I, I need to know, understand what my finances are doing. You know, I got people that I trust, but I, I feel like I need to be a little bit more involved in some of these things. And, yeah. you know, there's possibly some things that I could have missed out on because I was just focused on school. Mm. You know, instead of being knowledgeable to be like, hold on, uh, this is happening this year. You know, I I still got a lot more checks coming in right now. Maybe I should take advantage of that. Mm. And these are a lot of things that when we're in that moment, when we're getting checks, we don't think about or take advantage of in the time. So. You know, a lot of athletes, uh, when when sport is no longer a part of their life, the one common theme that that does come up to the surface is that we lose that sense of structure because Mm -hmm. our days are so crammed from 
5 a.m. all the way to 11 p.m., you know, especially, you know, you were only a, a, in college, you know, for a year. But even when you go to the professional level, I mean, it's just like you get up at 5 a.m., you have breakfast, you have to be, you have to warm up at 7 a.m., you have to be on the court by 8 and go from 8 to 10, and then you have film and lunch and then meetings and all that stuff. So when that wasn't a part of your life, did you miss it? And is, do you think that contributed to some of your struggles and, and finding uh, some sort of system to go off of. Yeah, um, I definitely want to say that because you just uh, you're so used to having that schedule that when you don't have you know something to do, you're just kind of lost, you know. Um, and I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever smoked weed, but that's a perfect way to get lost in time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Although I just kind of get paranoid from that. that I don't really like get lost and relax. I get paranoid from that stuff. Uh, see, I, I was TV. I got lost in hours <laughs> and movies. And I mean, that's how I just kind of dealt with the free time, you know. And then the evening would come and be like, okay, it's party time. Mm. And a lot of that as well is you're doing all this stuff and you're spending this type of money, but that money is not coming in that it was. Um, that's another stress that's happening. Um, when I look at it, it, it was a way to numb a lot of that free time. Um, and I mean, like you said, it's when you don't have that schedule that, you know, the, the wondering mind is, is going to mm -hmm. find something to pick up that slack. Yes, definitely. The mind is, is like a little puppy dog. It likes to chew on issues mm -hmm. and problems and thoughts. And when you don't, give it something to work on, it will find something yes. to chew on. <laughs> and the easier things are the things that are probably not the best for you yeah. um, in the healthy standpoint. Um, but it's easier to just go out and drink and to go out smoking, mm -hmm. to not do anything to help your life. It's tough to get up when you don't know what's going on to read a book to better yourself, to find things to, you know, put together in your time, to donate time or money to causes that mean something to you. It's hard to take the time to figure out what means something to you in your life yeah. because a lot of us just go through life and it's always our sport. Um, but when do you actually look back and be like, hey, I, I actually like this. You know, I, I want to donate or, or put, I want to put some time into some things that I actually like away from the sport. And that's a big thing for me that I had to realize. Like when I, when I graduated, I was like, okay, I can get a job, but I want to get something that, you know, I enjoy doing. And then you look back and you're like, well, what the heck do I enjoy doing? You know, yeah. it's kind of tough to actually find that, you know, from an early age, if you don't have that thing away from your sport that you love doing or you just enjoy doing, it's tough to find that when the sport's taken away. And I think the one thing that's like really critical about your story and I, and I want to highlight it so people understand just this concept of what they call in psychology, the athlete identity It basically happens when a person really identifies and internalizes sport as, as who they are and also what they do. And I think because of your background, um, I think basketball became like everything in, in your entire world. And I, it, I think it might be, I'll, I'll let you obviously delve into it, but it, I think it, some of it was intentional, but some of it was accidental. And I guess we'll, I'll, I'll explain it a little bit, but 
So you were born in Buffalo, right? Yes. Buffalo, New York. Yes. And what was your childhood like? Um, me, my brother, mom, and dad, um, bunch of cousins. Uh, spent a lot of time at my auntie's and my grandmother's house with in all New my York? cousins. Yeah. Um, my cousin Christopher um, was kind of like a brother to me. It was like once we were out of school and. You know, he was out of school. We were at his house. We was following him, me and my younger brother. You know, he, he was he was our everything. You know, he wow. was our big cousin. Everything he did, we had to do. Um, it, it so it sounds was, like you came from a pretty big family. Uh, yeah. Family? I mean, my mom had th three sisters mm. and two brothers. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, two of them. Didn't have any kids, but they were the younger ones. Ah. Um, but the other ones all had multiple kids. So we, I had a lot of cousins. Um, and, you know, we were a close family. So. And then and then you ended up moving to Indiana, Indiana. at nine, uh, right? I want to say third grade. Third grade. So, yeah, that's around like eight, nine, yeah. I believe. <clears throat> and, and why did you guys end up moving? Um, my mom and dad actually got a divorce. Um, so my mom got me and my brother and we went to Terre Haute, Indiana. Yeah, it was, uh, eye opening. We went from the yeah. inner city of Buffalo, New York to Terre Haute, Indiana, where I swear I didn't even see sidewalks in the suburbs, you know? Really? So, oh man. Like coming from Indiana, from New York, it was really weird because like you get in the suburbs of a city, like even here in Columbus, like. In Dublin, like I'll be going place, I'll be driving. I'll be like, do they not even have sidewalks here? Like, yeah, where that's are people. Walk? That is really true. Yeah. There's a lot of highways. Yes. Yeah, it's not a walkable. Yes. Area. So that was like one thing that I was like, okay, that was a little weird. But I mean, basketball country, Larry Bird yeah. land, you know, Terre Haute was. I mean, we had our auntie and my uh, my couple of my uncle's dad, so it was my grandfather, but him and my grandmother weren't married anymore. And they were here um, but, in, or no, they they were were in Indiana. Indiana. So that's okay. who we moved in with. Okay. Um, and uh, that's around the time I really started playing basketball serious. Um, but that was because my mom was working two jobs, you know, to provide for me and my brother. So I spent a lot of time at the Boys and Girls Club and not really thinking about it. It was just going and playing basketball every day. I didn't think I was good, but it was something to do to pass the time. And uh, after a while, I, I got pretty decent at it. It also helped that you were really, you eventually became very tall. But mm -hmm. like, you know, for even just for that experience, like watching your parents go through a divorce. I mean, there's a lot of people that can understand that. I mean, 50% of marriages end up in a, in a divorce, so the percentages aren't good. So that must have been really tough. And you were old enough at, what, eight, nine years old to understand what was going on. It's not like you were two years old. And then to have to move to a brand new place. And even though it's just like a minor detail, um, that the fact that there aren't any sidewalks, like it's, it's just a different environment, right? So yeah. maybe it took away the community aspect where you're so, you in New York were so used to going over to your cousin's house and stopping mm -hmm. through or whatever. And then you go to a different environment and all of a sudden you're just like, maybe there's not as big of a community or you're not as connected. And Yeah. I mean, you're just not as connected to that community at yeah. first. Um, but then with the divorce, you know, it, it kind of, 
be in a way kind of set the boundaries, I guess. Because, you know, before we moved, it was like, no arguments, you know, you kind of notice things mm-hmm. like, all right, this is a little different. But now, you know, mom's here, dad's here. We, we know that there's a hard line. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we kind of understood in that way. Um, but at that time, I did, uh, I started playing on the AU team um, in, in Terre Haute, um, I want to say, yeah, fourth grade, fifth grade. Wow, that's so young. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you think that looking back at things so and i and i moved from i was born in missouri so you know i grew up in the midwest and it's so different and i moved to tampa florida to attend the tennis academy Mm -hmm. so that's like it was such a huge shock for me like moving cities at a young age like is earth shattering like that that impacts you forever because um i went from being the kid in town, everybody knew, tennis player, really good tennis player. And all of a sudden I went to a public school and I was like the new kid getting picked on. And I went from a predominantly white, very like safe neighborhood in Missouri, Mexico, Missouri. Shout out Mexico, Missouri, Ty Lu. <laughs> you know, I got to give my, my show me state a shout out. And then, but then I went to a public school and it was like super diverse and way more rough and tough. But the reason why I highlight that is because, you know, just talking about your experience of, you know, you have things going on with your family and then you're like the new kid on the block. And I, for me, like was trying to find something to hold on to because all this unfamiliarity is like popping up in your life. And so for me, pouring myself into sport, that became my family that became my stability and something to hold on it was it was like my my teddy bear i don't know what else to call it it was like my my first love my relationship and hearing about your experience i wonder if how did basketball because of everything that was going on around that time did that kind of become your family your best friend in a way i mean at the time i don't think i really thought about it that way um, I just looked at it as it was something to do. Mm. Um, I just looked at basketball like, you know, you got all this free time. You don't really know a lot of people. I mean, this is just a sport to have fun, um, get out a lot of energy. Um, but I, I never really thought about it. But yeah. now looking back at yeah, it, I, I like kind of engulfed myself in basketball around that time. Like I played in Buffalo just for fun. And then when I got to Indiana, which is the basketball state, yeah, um, that was all I wanted to do, um, and that was it was cartoon school basketball, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess with that move, it kind of was like, all right, all these thoughts. I guess a young child has it was for me. It was basketball, so I was just there. You know, I didn't have time to think about you know my parents. Or, you know, being in a new city, you know, it was just like, I know this is familiar. Yeah. I can do this as much as I want to, and, and it's not going to be changing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, and, and I highlight that because, especially as kids, we, kids will develop amazing behaviors or coping mechanisms to deal with <laughs> with life because life can get tough. Right. And, um, 
And we won't really know why we do things until we're an adult. Yeah. You know, and and I ask a lot of athlete questions, a lot of athletes these questions, because then it starts to peel back the layers of like, right, so this is why football or tennis or basketball became so important in my life because, you know, it may or may not have related to the family um, and the divorce and the move, but it might play into the formula of it, you know? I don't know. It definitely did for me because the AU team I started playing for, like, guys on that team um, are still family to me to this day. I mean, my best friend uh, I met on that team, um, and, I mean, he passed away while we were in college, but um, he was my best friend. I mean, I can still say to this day he was the only person that I would talk to every day. Hmm. Um, Who was that? Uh, his name's Travis Smith. Hmm. I'll wear his little forever yeah, was... in our hearts. Oh, Travis J. Smith. That's, that's cool. uh, my best friend. Um, and his parents, his dad was the basketball coach. Hmm. Uh, his mom is like my mom still to this, like they're and his younger sister, like they're my family still to this day. Um, and a couple of guys, you know, I'm really close with on that team that I still talk to. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they became my family, you know, away from home, you know, it was my mom and my brother, but I look forward to going to basketball practice. I look forward to going on AU trips with them because they, they became my brothers and my family as well. Well, I mean, I think it makes sense then why at least at the very early stages, um, basketball became so important to you is because that meant family, especially if you'd move and also your mom. So your mom was working a couple jobs trying to support that. That must have been really hard for her, especially becoming a single mother. Now that I am a mother, I'm like, I have no idea how single mothers do it. I just, yeah. I it don't, it's so hard. It, it takes a village to raise a kid. Mm-hmm. So props to her and all yes. shout out to all the single mothers out there. Uh, definitely shout out to all the single moms. Yeah. So, and then, um, so when did you start basketball? Do you, what, what are your first memories? Um, so I remember playing uh, in a little summer league in third grade. Um, in then, Indiana? In Buffalo. Oh, in and Buffalo, then okay. at the end of that summer, we moved to Indiana. Okay. Um, and then I started playing on the AAU team, um, playing at the Boys and Girls Club and played with the AAU team. And that's when it started, fourth grade. And it, I don't think it's ever stopped my love for the game. I mean, I played in the big three league, the yeah. Ice Cube big three league this summer. And so, I mean, when I can play, I go out there and play. Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like you were very good very early because if no. you went, no? No, oh. I was not. Oh. oh, I started playing in first grade. I, I hit my first basket for the wrong team. <laughs> I love that. That's that awesome. happened. That like uh, I, <laughs> I mean, I got the ball and I just shot it, and they were like, "There's a reason you got the ball. They're pressing and you're open." I was like, "Oh, not bad. I'm never passing the ball, anyways." Um, and I don't think I I was actually good to like eighth grade. Really? Maybe ninth. But you were very I was big. tall. So, I was big. Right. Yes. So in fifth grade, you were were you five ten? Uh, fifth grade was about five ten, and then at the end of sixth grade, I was six five, six six. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And then seventh grade, six seven. Eighth grade, six eight. 
ninth grade, 6'10", then 6'11", and, and sophomore year, I was basically this height. What was it like going through such a major growth spurt and being so tall at such a young age? And I think what's unique about, I was really thinking about this and having conversations with a lot of my friends in basketball, outside of it. And the one thing that I've learned about NBA players particularly is that you guys are so tall that you literally physically stand out in the crowd and while people that can't relate to that or fans may not, they may look at that as really cool and glamorous because you get to be bigger than everybody else. But it's also hard because you can't hide either. Yes. That's uh, one of the things that I've struggled with is just trying to be a guy that did not want all the attention. But when you're seven feet tall, you walk into a room or anywhere Everybody can see you. So I used to tell people, you know, how, how would you feel if everybody can see you, spot you out, and then you're in a room where you know nobody? And, you know, that's kind of tough because I walk in a room and everybody this. But I don't know that person. I've never met that person before in my life, and everybody can see me. So a lot of times, I don't know, I kind of hunch over, kind of put my shoulders down was always my way of kind of hiding, getting to a corner and just kind of stay out the way. But, you know, I've kind of took to a point where now where I'm like, you got to own this. I mean, it's not going to change. I mean, unless something horrific happens to your legs or your back, you know, you're not going to get shorter. Um, so you just, you know, just try to be as comfortable in your own skin as possible because it's not going to change. And that's the one thing I want to get by to a lot of people is, you know, I'm walking in my shoes, you know, so there's no reason to be embarrassed about everything I've been through, you know, or who I am. You know, I'm this big, but, you know, when you're seven feet tall, airplanes need to start giving you just automatic first class bulkhead <laughs> seats because that is terrible. Like, I remember sometimes going so in and they'll look at me and be like, yeah, you got this regular seat. And I'm like, Look up. Like, I can't fit. I physically can't fit, you know, from my hip to the bottom of my knee. Like, that space in between the seats is not that long. So. That is so true for somebody who is very vertically challenged at 5'2". <laughs> I can fit into any space. So yes. that I don't. And I, even though most people would know me as very outgoing and warm and loud sometimes, and but I... I am an introvert at times. I really do. So like after this interview and being, if we go out to lunch and like see people, like around 5 p.m., I will hit a wall. Really? And I have to be by myself. Really? Yeah. Yes. And I, I, I want to point that out because I think we live in a society that rewards people for being loud and opinionated, especially today, today's mm -hmm. political climate, like loud and opinionated and strong and all that stuff. But I've, I don't think strength has to be loud. I think strength can be yeah. quiet. But I think that if I were really tall and in your shoes, I, I think I would have – it would have been tough for me because I yeah. like to hide sometimes. Yeah. And But you know, going back to your middle school period, looking back, how did you adjust to your physical changes, what, physically or mentally? Um. Well, mentally, I just kind of 
stay with basketball, you know, and stay with my sport. That, that kind of molded me to be the person that I was, you know, just, you know, not really knowing how to handle being the biggest guy at a young age. You know, I'm the biggest guy in the school. Yeah. And I'm sixth grade, you know. Um, did people, did kids say anything? Some. Um, younger girls were pretty mean to me. The girls were? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, feel I, like I, I, thought, I thought that that would be an asset, being a tall, strong, strapping young lad in middle school. Because, like, the last thing guys don't... people thinking about at sixth grade? You know, they're... I mean, in my sixth grade in Tampa, Florida, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's making fun of you in sixth grade. Yes, that is true. I mean, and I, I found that out when I yeah. moved over to Florida. Everybody makes fun of everybody. Yes. Kids can be really mean. Yes. So when you're that, that guy who doesn't know how to riffraff back or joke because I, I was never the guy to talk about anybody you know I just always had fun you know whatever somebody else had going on or something bad that happened to them I, I wasn't gonna put it on blast or anything like that I just tried to you know maybe they need some help you know I was always that nice kid um but I don't know sixth grade was was rough for me and yeah. I you know so I tried to even hide even more you know because I say this when, well, my grandfather told me this. When you're big, one thing you can't do is look all bad with your clothes all, and you can't smell. You're already big, so you can't smell and dress super terribly. Your grandfather is he tall too, or yeah, he is about six five? Oh six, wow! So, yeah, he. So he understands. He understood, and I tried to tell people that all the time. Look, you already big. You can't be funky and dress and out here dressing all terrible. I understand. <laughs> it's tough on us. On as a big man, wisdom right there. It really is. <laughs> I mean, the clothes part is kind of hard because it's kind of hard to find clothes that just fit us. Um, but you can make sure you don't you smell. Don't yes. Because <laughs> now you just like a stinky big man. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, that must have been, I think that's um, interesting to hear your side of it because those are like the little details that are, at least in my eyes, are important because it, it, offer, it offers people a different perspective on your journey because I think most people see you as this big, strong, athletic basketball player, the next Bill Russell, whatever you want to call it. But before all that began, you were just a kid who wanted to be loved like everybody else and just wanted to have fun and wanted to have fun in basketball. Mm -hmm. But your physical stature, you know, I was having this conversation yesterday, but like, over time, as I've been able to talk to athletes, I kind of, I start to place them in different groups so I understand their processes. And initially, like in terms of how a, an athlete begins sport, I always ask the question to the athlete, did you look for this sport? Did you gravitate towards it? Or did it find you? Hmm. If that makes sense. Because, so... I, and I've brought this up in other interviews, the reason why that became important to me and I related to that was I was reading Andre Agassi's book, Open, and he talks about how he kind of fell into tennis. He mm -hmm. didn't, he can't, grew to love it, mm -hmm. but tennis found him. And that was my journey. I, tennis, I didn't necessarily seek tennis. It found me because I just happened to be like pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. And once I started, I grew to love it, but 
I also grew to love the things that it offered me, mm. which over time, it can kind of backfire. So they have like the difference between intrinsic value and ex extrinsic value. You've heard of those, yes. right? So intrinsic value is, are things that are innate and you, you truly love the sport, you have fun with it, whatever. The extrinsic stuff is where things start to like really backfire for the athletes, rewards, right? The places you every, can go. Exactly. And so like every athlete, especially as you get to the elite level, every athlete falls into that. Like who wouldn't wo love the attention and recognition and the, we, you and I were talking about the free gear. Like, yes. who <laughs> yes. like who wouldn't love all that attention and the money and the fame and the, you know, recognition and all that stuff. Um, so I guess within that context, can you, can you figure out if you gravitated towards basketball or in some ways it found you? Um, and looking at that, yes. Um, so because you think it, basketball it, found you? Yes. It, Cause it was just something that I did. Like basketball was... We were at the Boys and Girls Club anyways, and basketball is just one of those sports where you just get a basket and a ball, and you can do it by yourself. You don't need everybody there. So, you know, just shooting ball, just being tall, just wasting time. And then uh, somebody, my best friend's dad saw me and was like, he's pretty tall. Let's try to get him on our, our kids' AAU team, you know? Um, I wasn't good, but I always went to practice. I enjoyed going to practice to be around these new friends that I have, you know? I was never thinking, oh, you love this game of basketball, so you're doing it for this. It was like, no, I got friends. Now I went on AAU trips. I had my first flight on an AAU trip, you know, to Dallas. I was scared. <laughs> He'll tell the story that I grabbed him so tight when we first took off. Um, and so now I'm going to all these places. I'm meeting a bunch of people. Um, but I'm also practicing all the time, you know. And, and I'm not really thinking about, you know, I'm practicing to get better. It's just I'm on this team now. So I just keep on playing. I keep on playing. And it wasn't until... I want to say the summer of the seventh, the summer after seventh grade, when one of my friends was like, "Hey, you ever tried dunking?" And I was like, "No, but I'm freaking six seven, so That's it's like, awesome. so I did." And I remember that uh, I finally got it down. And then eighth grade, I uh, oh, then later on that summer, I finally got a dunk in the game. And I don't know what that dunk did, but that dunk was like, it was like, wait. This whole crowd just went crazy off of this one dunk. I can do that all the time. So the next thing I know, that's all I wanted to do. I'm taking the spirit out of the opponent every time I dunk the ball. The crowd's going crazy. I'm getting energized. The team's getting energized. And then it just went from there. Um, and then that's really when I was like, hold on, I can be really good at this. You know, I, I can start honing my skills. And then a lot of stuff started coming in, in high school, all these awards, still traveling, going to Vegas for the first time, um, college recruitment, um, all American awards uh, that I'm not even thinking about. I'm just playing basketball and having a good time competing and enjoying the time with my friends and my family. It's interesting to hear your experience because I think internally, everything is very, it's a gradual and linear progression upward. And see if I can explain this, how I'm processing everything. But it, like underneath the surface, you were just doing it because you loved basketball and it was something to do. 
and maybe it was a passion, but it wasn't like your life purpose or no, love, it, right? It definitely wasn't. Not right. at so that time. You just let's just say you you liked it. Like mm-hmm. it's okay to, you know, I I feel like there's a lot of athletes that I have found who obviously love the sport, mm-hmm. but then there's a lot of them get that get reach the elite levels mm-hmm. and it's hard to say like I just like my sport, yeah. you know, because we live in a society where it's uh I don't know. It's, it's just very intense and there's a lot of expectations too mm-hmm. and fans and you put all these expectations on your shoulders. And like, if somebody came out and like, if, if, if you came out and were like, you know what? Like, I like basketball. I don't love it. You would have gotten so much criticism and hate. So it's, so that's just kind of like bubbling beneath the surface. But then around you, I feel as though your, your career the events around you were so quick up and then so quick down. I was just going to say that. Right? I, I mean, I, I look at it um, as as that. Like, my life story, it was built up. And from a young age, everything was good. Everything was going so well. Um, and I want to say my first big blow was in college. Um, it was uh, losing my best friend. Um, mm. to a car accident. Um, his name was Travis Smith. Um, uh, he got in a car. He went to Butler, uh, not Butler, uh, Ball State. Mm. Um, he was a golfer. Really? Um, oh, yeah. We was the first Robin Big. You know, he's a no way. 5'11", white kid, can shoot the ball, play golf, and I'm this 7-foot, 6'11", Big, tall, black man. We were best friends. I love me some Robin Big. I know. That was my favorite show. It was just me and him. That's really that's really cool and that's really yeah. cute. I think that says a lot about it says a lot about you and your openness to things and people too. I mean, everybody's a good person deep down, you know. I I, I wonder I look at life like, you know, everybody is a person. You can give everybody their respect until they give you a reason not to. Mm. Um, that's just how I would want to be treated. Um, if you first meet me, I want you to treat me with respect as I'm going to do the same to you. You know, If it doesn't work out, then we can go our separate ways. But Where does you that should come bring from? That. Because not a lot of people are, are like that. And you do come off, so, which is why I wanted maybe uh, selfishly to sit down with you because you just genuinely are a very nice and warm person. Um, I wish that kindness would be rewarded more in today's society, but because I'm the same way, but I've learned that sometimes people can take advantage of that. And, and I think that's a part of your story as well, because you are so kind. And if you, because if you automatically trust or respect someone initially like that's i think that's awesome but that could also be the gateway towards a lot Um, of hurt i mean it kind of i mean i don't look at it that way you know i just kind of look at it like this is just me like i'm gonna respect everybody everybody's a person everybody deserves some type of respect in this life i mean we're all here we want to be happy we want to enjoy time with our families, and we just want to live a good life. So that all stems from, are you going to respect? Are you going to put that same type of energy, that same type of kindness out in the world? And so that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, it should be rewarded a little bit more. But, you know, if it's not and 
you know, the loud anger or just aggressive. They kind of get up a little bit more in life, but that's not what I want to see. I want to see positivity. I want to see kindness. So that's the person that I'm going to be. I agree with you. I do think kindness wins in the end though. Um, So going back to your high school career. So meanwhile, you, you fall into basketball and pretty good at it. And you get really good at it. Not pretty good. Mike Conley definitely helped. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. When I look back at life, it was like, Greg, you were pretty good in high school. I was like, I had a pretty damn good point guard as well. He made me look really good. So he he helped you look really good. (laughs) Yes, he did. But you did really start to blow up at, at the high school level. And then you started, you talk about all these awards. You were the Gatorade player of the year. Was it twice. twice, two years in a row. You were the Indiana Mr. Basketball. Uh, you took your high school to three straight championships, mm-hmm. right? And, and I, you know, as I was reading up on your story and I, I think about the move from New York to Indiana mm-hmm. and I feel I couldn't help but think how that, blew up basketball as a part of your life because I think you would have been big no matter what mm-hmm. physically and metaphorically speaking but the fact that you went to Indiana where I mean the basketball Indiana, is yes like everything one. I mean that Indiana Mr. Basketball is an award that's been around for like since I think 1939 so it, it just shows do you think that moving to Indiana played a role in your bigness uh, history? I think so, um, because basketball is a part of my history and a part of me. Um, and Indiana just magnified that. And um, that move, I think, kind of put my mind on that and down that path. I think in, in New York, um, I probably would have got there eventually. Um, but I think the people who I was around, the the teaching, the coaching I got in basketball from Indiana compared to what I probably would have got um, in New York was just different. And it put mm. me on this path that where it just blew up. I mean, being, you know, paired with Mike Conley Jr., um, having his dad as our coach, seeing the uh, Olympic just pe- preparation and how he handled, you know, losses, uh, wins, you know, I say one of the best advice, one of the best advice I've got at a childhood was from Mike Conley Sr. was don't get too high up on the mm-hmm. wins and don't get too low on the losses, you know, just try to stay even killed with all of it. And uh, I think that's a great way to handle a lot of successes and a lot of losses in your life because, you know, you won't let that affect you. Um, and I wouldn't have got a lot of that stuff if I wasn't in Indiana. And basketball-wise, I mean, like I just said, it really did just blow up. Um, but, it, I mean, it took me a while to get there. But I think that coaching and the people that I was around and, and that path that I was on in Indiana made it that way. And I think it would have been a lot different. I mean, I could have still got to that point in New York, but it didn't happen that way. So Yeah. It did seem like I know it was a gradual process, but I, it seems like it happened so quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so you're you're senior. Actually, no, you declared to Ohio State at your junior. At the, you were junior. Your junior year. Yeah. Your junior year. Mm-hmm. 
So what was the transition from high school to, to college like for you? Um, it was it was pretty pretty cool. I mean, it, it wasn't bad. Uh, knowing that was such a like you have such a big smile, but then there's it, there's like more behind that answer. Well, well first, <laughs> Coach Mala, uh, just his energy and this university, like the football game we went to. I want to say it was Ohio State, Texas. Oh. So, yeah, it was like one of the greatest football games ever. Um, and then Coach Mata, Daquan Cook already being committed to come here. Um, Matthew Terwilliger, who I throw out because, you know, he was the guy who I was hanging with on my visit that, like, I was like, okay, he, he's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> like, he basically sold me to come here. Really? Um yeah, and we loved everything about Columbus, and it was a two-and-a-half-hour drive. I used to say, you know, my mom can get here if she needed to, but it's just far enough that she's just not going to drive here every day. You know? She's close, but not too close. <laughs> yes. So that worked. We were in the Midwest. We were at a football school, so, you know, if we didn't perform up to par basketball-wise, Football's always going to be number one anyways. So we were okay. You know? I love it how you go there and you get all this attention, but you had that in the back of your mind. You're like, well, it's not too much attention. Yeah, it's a lot of attention, but a, not too much it's attention. It's not too crazy. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, just that transition. It, Coach Mata, you know, Coach Richardson, Coach Majors, um, all those assistant coaches, um, they, they were so good and, and – I think that team was was meant for each other because, you know, we we felt comfortable here. We enjoyed it. I enjoyed walking to class in the rain, snow, like this university. Wow, I, oh my gosh. I really loved being a college student staying on campus that year. I mean it could help that I was big man on campus, I guess to say. Um You were well loved. Just a little bit. <laughs> <I love> <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, and you only spent, even though you live here now and you came back, but you only spent one year here at Ohio State. And and looking at the events, at least on paper, one might think, because transitioning to college for a lot of student athletes is, can be really tough. It was tough mm -hmm. on me. It's a huge responsibility between, like, classes and class load and the academic rigor and then also being a full-time having a full-time job and being a student athlete but and you had surgery right before you came wrist mm -hmm. surgery right mm -hmm. but when i i get the sense that if out of anything that i'm going to talk to you about like ohio state your face just lights up yeah. you get so happy and it seems as though that is that a period where you had a lot of good memories. I definitely have a lot of good memories here. Um, it was one of those things when I think about it, um, it, it's a tough transition period for everybody. But when I was here, I felt comfortable. Mm. Um, and I think that's why I still live here. Um, just the comfort level that Columbus gave me, like it always felt like home from the first time we stepped foot in our dorms, you know, I'm thinking we're going to be in the little dorms, like sharing, you know, a room and bathroom with everybody on the floor. Um, but then, you know, we were able to get in the graduate dorms 
and you know, we each had our own bedroom and me and Mike shared a bathroom, Daquan and Dave shared a bathroom, we all shared a living room and the kitchen, you know, so to have that living situation and and everything, I, I told you I like a list, so knowing that I have to be here and I have this mm-hmm. class and I have this tutor and we have practice scheduled for this time and then I, I got tutor after this, like I had my whole day planned out, so it wasn't nothing I had to think about or improvise, it was just like, you know where you got to go be there you yeah. know so, so you I was like, always you really home. love that structure I do and you thrive in that yeah so when you so you spend a year here at Ohio State and even though you're injured you guys come back you have a great season right you get to the NCAA championship game yes that wasn't uh, the best feeling afterwards but you look back and you have great memories and then compared to your experience at the NBA which is uh, you know, I've learned more about that transition and talking to other NBA players that, and it's unique and different than football because football, there's so many positions. You have 53 guys on a roster. Basketball is different where it's a smaller team, five positions. So there's less spots and it, it's tough because you go from college, a very home a comfortable environment. Everyone's focused on winning and being a team. And from what I've heard, going to the professional level and maybe at the NBA level, now you got people, like now it's about money, people fighting for their lives, people fighting for their livelihood and their families. Mm -hmm. And then you also might have the dynamic of veterans who may or may not be in a mentoring role, you know, because, so I've heard about that political aspect. But what, how did your MBA just transition compared to your college one? Well, I go to um, the draft. So spent about three, four days in New York. My whole entire family's out there in New York City. Uh, flew them all out, put them up in hotels. And I basically had no time with my family. Um, I was doing media things, uh, media training. I was doing events where it's come helping kids, camps, all this stuff around the NBA um, and around to build the brand that I want that I never even had time to really just spend the afternoon with, you know, my cousins who I had, you know, I talk about my best cousin, my favorite cousin, who's now in the Air Force, who, you know, is in New York. But, you know, I only got to see him in passing and talk for a little bit with my uncles and all my aunties. Um, And then draft night comes and, you know, I was trying to do so much for everybody else that a story that um, I haven't told most people was when you're sitting at that table, you know, they come and they're like, you know, for time. You can hug the person to your left, hug the person to your right, which is usually your mom and your dad. You know, I have my grandmother and my brother over there and other people at the table. And I always regret that I didn't just go around that table and even, you know, hug everybody at that table because it was a great moment. you got to enjoy that. But you think about it, that's the start of me, you know, trying to do all this stuff for everybody else, you know. And then I go up. and I shake David Stern's hand, and I'm the first one to go back do interviews. I'm the last one to leave mm. that uh, arena, you wow. know. And then soon as I get back, I'm thinking finally I get to go out, party, hang out. I'm in New York City for the first time. Um, all my family's here. We're going to enjoy this moment. And they're like, you got an hour to pack. You're on a private plane to Portland. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'm getting all the, I got all these suits. I got all these clothes here and all this stuff that I've gotten in New York. And I just have to leave. Most they of it. They couldn't even give you, like, a, a morning with your family no, or no, a day? No, because when I landed in Portland that morning, you think, I'm not even dressed. I'm in jeans, a t-shirt, and, like, one of those little stringly line backpacks. Yeah. And they have a freaking parade in downtown Portland. Oh. So I'm coming to, like, no time to do anything, no time with my family, straight to Portland, barely getting any sleep, to I'm in a parade of, it seems like, the whole city. And, I mean, I'm not going to say I was the savior, but, you know, that's kind of the feeling you get, you know. I'm, oh, you, I'm were freaking, looked, you were looked to yeah, be one. And I'm yeah. 19 years old, and yeah. I don't know how to handle this. Like, you know, going to Ohio State was different. Being in high school, winning three state championships, that was cool and all. But, like, this is, like, this is big time. Now the money's involved, you know. Now this is what people are talking about on ESPN all day. You know, that pressure's there. And I'm looking at it like, I'm 19. I don't know how to handle any of this stuff, you know? I'm just coming from, you know, where I had my whole entire day planned for me, Yeah. you know? So now it's like you got this type of money, you got this type of expectations, this little bit of freedom, this massive celebrity, you know, all those added up, you know, what's what's really going to happen? Because, like, college is, is definitely different because there's – while you might be the guy on campus – there is a shared goal, and yeah. and everybody walks around and looks at the basketball team as kings on campus or the football mm-hmm. team. But when you are the number one overall pick, I mean, it's just it's just you. at that professional level, yes. So you know, so like no matter what happens here, you know, when I think about when we won the national championship with football, you know, like you could look at it and be like, no, Cardell. Mm. Zeke, you know, these guys who played a, a, a big part at it. But no, Ohio State won the, national, the first national championship of the playoff, you know. And college is always going to come back to that school, you know. And the league, you think about when Bron and then one for Cleveland. Yeah, you know, Kyrie won the you know, NBA championship. He hit the big shot. Mm-hmm. LeBron bought the championship back to Cleveland. You know, mm-hmm. that's the storyline you're hearing. You're not hearing, you know. It's more about the individual it, players. It feels a lot more about it the individual yes, than it, it does in college. Yeah, I think it is. I, especially today. Um, and there's like a there's a business model and commercialization mm-hmm. behind that. My my husband is is in media and advertising and brand development, and there's a lot of the stuff that he does uh, sheds light and, and informs me about what is going on behind the business of sport. Mm-hmm. And because of the sneaker culture, because of NBA, became just kind of being trendy these days. So fans will look to just a an athlete rather mm-hmm. than the whole team. And I think that that definitely plays into it. And so so you have all this attention. And I think the one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that becoming a professional athlete, especially at the, the level that you were and, and being so famous and put on a pedestal, is that there's a huge responsibility and obligation that comes with being a professional athlete. So rather than being able to spend time with your family, mm-hmm. now you've got interviews, you've got meetings, you, you've got all this other stuff. You're traveling a lot. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's just a lot that comes with that amount of money you're getting paid. 
you know, that lot of, amount of pressure, you know, you, you have some expectations that you got to take care of. And I mean, it's not bad because you definitely get compensated pretty well for yeah. it. Um, and, you know, it's just a kind of the give and take, you know, with, with that amount of money that you can take care of your whole entire family and your family's family for years to come. You know, you're going to have to, you know, miss a couple of birthdays. You're going to be on the road for some holidays. You know, you're, you know, a lot of your time is going to be taken away, um, away from the family or, or something that might be a little bit more important to you um, for you know, this basketball and for that compensation that you mm -hmm. get. And now as you go to the NBA, now just your, your physical health becomes a part of the equation and everything. And before you even, you know, so you, you go to Ohio state and you have surgery right before it. And now you go to the NBA and you have surgery before your rookie mm -hmm. season. At what point is, where is your physical health at this point? So it was about two months into it, um, into the summer after I got drafted, I want to say, if that, before um, I was basically having a microfracture surgery. Um, I went in there um, thinking that it was, you know, just something minor and then that they were going to go in and, and fix whatever, not thinking that it was going to be a major, you know, I woke up to like, yeah, you're out for a year and I'm like, wait. I, th I thought if it was like this, this, or this, we're going to take care of it. Not thinking that I didn't even know the possibility of me being out a whole year was something even on the table. Wow. Wait, did they, did they prep you before? Did so they, they think did. it was something else? So they did. Um, but my understanding at that time was, you know, it's going to be something like not a year, you know. It might be several months. It, it might be a couple of months, you know, just... You'll play, but a whole year sitting out, like, that's not something that was technically in my head of uh, from that surgery, you know. It was, you know, go get cleaned up, we're going to go get this fixed, and, you know, either you can be coming back in a week or two, or it might take a few months, but, you know, the microfracture that I had, it just made more sense to be out for the whole entire year, but, you know, wow. waking up to that news was kind of like, wait, what? hold on, like all this expectation, you know, um, that I put on myself and then that's out there, you know, it, it's, it's, it's tough to deal with at that moment. That's kind of traumatizing to, because typically when, you know, I, we talked about this uh, before, but I've, I've had four surgeries, but typically there's the whole physical therapy phase. You go to physical therapy for several months and then surgery is the last resort. And then you talk about the surgery, what kind it is. And they, roll out the the timeline and and all that jazz so did was it originally because i know with one of your surgeries it was supposed to be arth arthroscopic which is where they insert three holes and they kind of do a very cleanup of it mm -hmm. but the microfracture surgery is very serious and complicated mm -hmm. so was it originally supposed to be arthros arthroscopic yes so it was oh. really supposed to be a go in kind of see what's going on clean it up got it and then it was like well this is what it is. We're already in here. So Let's they switched it up it. without even like telling I mean, you or. I knew that there was a possibility of, you know, doing something while they were in there. That's not the case, but the year long surgery, like that's not, you know, like I wasn't prepped for that. I was prepped yeah. and my thought was it's going to be something minor. You know, we could possibly do something to 
fix it up if we see anything else. But you got to think, like, I'm not going in thinking that anything else is a yeah. year long. You're out for the yeah, year. That's not. It. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking it could, like, at most it would be three, four months. You know, that would be worst case scenario. But you know, my worst case scenario was a full year. Wow. And something that obviously I dealt with throughout my whole entire career after that. Well, yeah, arthroscopic. So I had arthros- arthroscopy on uh, right shoulder, both knees. It's even faster now, but even back then, yeah. 15 years ago, I mean, they want you moving like two days later and um, yeah. you're you're out in like a month and yeah. you're starting to train or whatever. So you wake up, that's, that's, that's a lot. I mean, you, so mm-hmm. you, and I'm still 19 at this time. You're 19 and you're a rookie. Mm-hmm. And of course you feel the expectation of the city mm-hmm. on your shoulders. And you thought it was just going to be a couple weeks, couple months, whatever you wake up and they're like, you're, you're out for the rest of the year. Yeah. That must have been, that must have been a lot. I don't even. Yeah. It, it was. And then you got to think like, you know, so now I'm just trying to figure out how am I going to connect with my teammates? Mm-hmm. Um, how am I, what am I going to do for the city? You know, I'm, they just had this big old parade for me. Like <laughs> how, how am I going to contribute? What am I going to even be doing? Um, so, you know, I, I didn't have the mindset I had then, you know. I'm not sitting there watching every practice and then doing my rehab outside of practice. No, I'm doing my rehab during practice. You know, I want to be there. I want to be doing stuff at the same time the team's doing stuff. So I'm not thinking, no, you need to be sitting here watching all these little things. You need to be in the film sessions and and just getting little things, you know, adding to your game, adding to your mental um, about the game. No, I, I didn't have people to tell me that, you know. I'm 19 years old. I just want to have fun. I just want to be around my teammates, enjoy, you know, being this professional athlete, you know. And then, you know, there was times where, you know, I was seeing the therapist and trying to figure out, you know, okay, am I even thinking correctly? But Portland's a very small city. So Mm. for me, a lot of things would, I would feel like, the GM would bring me in and, and he's having a conversation about me. Greg, did you do this? Did you do this last night? And I'm like, well, how do you know that? Like, so now I feel like I'm being watched. Wow. So now I'm trying to hide even more. So now, you know, I mean, I'm doing what he, I'm doing. Were they asking personal questions and were they asking about you seeking help? Uh, no, you know, they have the team therapists. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but Portland being so small, you don't realize that, you know, the the beat writer mm. can literally go, he's having dinner. I'm going to have dinner. I'm having fun with friends. You know, a writer in the city might have went out that same night and seen me somewhere. You know, they're relaying this back to the GM. Add and on it, top of it, you're seven feet tall. And yeah, it goes so back I can't to that hide thing. anywhere I go. Right. So now, you know, so now I'm really trying to hide. So now I'm not talking to nobody. I'm not opening up about anything because I just feel like I'm being watched everything I do. So now I, I kind of don't trust, you know, trust the therapist as much as I should have to get the mm. proper help that I need. I'm not talking to, you know, the people I need to talk to. I'm not talking to coaches. I'm not talking to the trainer, you know, and telling them the truth to actually help me with everything I'm going through. Now I'm just... 19 feeling like i'm all alone it's me and my boy who's living out there with me we're just trying to maneuver the city quietly without nobody seeing me you know doing stuff that you know most people wouldn't do and um it wasn't the right path 
Well, it was a hard path. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of the things that you're talking about, I think the league and teams are starting to – it's taking it's taken some history and some time and events, and your story is one of many where they've started to make changes. Mental mm-hmm. health, I mean, that's the yeah. reason why I created this show is to talk about mental health. And now I just visited with Dr. William Parham, who's the new mental health director for the MBPA, oh, and they've – you know Dr. Parham? I've heard he's a good, Yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, if you ever need anything, he has – even for retired players, he has offered his assistance. So I know he works with Keon Dooley. Yes. 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 So, yes, yep. I've met him at uh, Rookie Transition. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Wait, this summer you said? Yeah, or? this summer. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah so they I are... was one of the counselors at Rookie Transition. Ah, yeah. So I sat in on all the little different ones. Yeah, and they – so him and Keon, the mental health and wellness program, mm-hmm. which is associated with the MBPA – just started last year and they've, you know, Dr. Parham's talked about this program. It's got four phases. He has now established a whole medical system. There's therapists and psychologists in every single MBA city. And right. And there's also a a level of privacy and anonymity. Mm -hmm. So players don't have to deal with the things that you dealt with, even Mm -hmm. though it still continues to be an issue because a lot of athletes don't want to seek help because they feel that the teams will hold it against them and coaches will hold all of that against them. And there are a lot of coaches that still do and they're of that old mindset. But, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it was when you were, yeah, I mean, now that's what? 12, 14, 13. Yeah. I mean, I was completely different back then. So here you are, you're, you thought you were going to have just a minor surgery you ended end up being out for the rest of the year. And even at 19, you're doing the things to get help, but you're in an environment where everyone's watching on, everyone's watching you. You don't know who to trust. People are kind of like, you know, tattletailing on you a little bit, maybe because they don't mean to be, but it's, you just kind of stand out and it's like, oh, there's Greg. Yeah. And then, you know, at 19, I'm thinking, I'm not thinking correctly. I'm thinking like a 19-year-old. I think anything negative towards me is somebody was out to get me. Yeah. Or somebody, you know, felt a certain type of way to ruin whatever I thought I had going on in my head. You know, Mm -hmm. at 19, you just think all types of stuff. You know, I'm not thinking, well, maybe, you know, these people are just trying to make sure I'm good, making sure I'm not going the wrong places, making sure I'm not doing this that's going to hurt me in the long run. Um but, you know, I, I wasn't reaching out to people to, to find that, you know. And at the same time, you know, like I had vets on that team, but I wasn't reaching out, you know. And then the guys I was closest with, Brandon Roy and LaMarcus, they just got drafted the year before me, you know. So we're all pretty young at that time. I mean, and Brandon was – he eventually went through his own health issues yeah. and, and all of that. So everyone's just kind of figuring out their own system and yes. at that age at 19 you don't know I was still in college like I did not I didn't know what I was doing and when and the psychological aspect of being injured it's not as simple as going to rehab and and it's like okay let's f- fix the body and make you make the return mm-hmm. it is it's lonely it's isolating yes. uh, because you're right you talked about practice. Mm-hmm. But you can't be with the team because you've got rehab. And rehab, especially with that type of surgery, you're probably in there anywhere from two to six hours a day. 
Yeah, about two because you're you need to lift as well. Right. And you got to do all the stuff for your knees, um, and then you can't forget about the rest of your body because your whole body works together. Um, yeah, it's, it's some time time consuming. You got to add the diet you need to be on so you don't gain extra weight while you know one of your limbs is a little bit weaker. Um, and I think getting to know what matters to you and how much you enjoyed Ohio State and having that community and you talk about like your face lights up when you talk about the dorms and being being able to have bunk mates and three room four roommates. Whatever. I felt like it was just it was acceptable to be to learn and to be coming into your own um, as a person um, when you're in college then. Um, well, now, you know, these guys are looked at as pros, mm-hmm. even in college. But, you know, when you start making that money and your name is called, you know, you're, you're supposed to be a pro then. Right. You know, and I keep on saying you're only 19 years old. And a lot of us who are in that position are coming from families that's never been in that position no more. So you don't really know how to handle You don't have a playbook on, on how to handle yourself in these type of situations and around these professional people. You just going by, you know, doing whatever you think's right. Mm-hmm. And knowing how much family and community is important to you, and then add all the injuries that you went through over the course of your career, and already how isolating and tough it is to just deal with injuries. Period. Mm-hmm. As an athlete, um, that must have exacerbated your situation even more because you know you just you want to be a part of the team Mm -hmm. but your body's not allowing you to do that and it must have been um challenging five years i was with portland it was a lot of ups and downs from um injury standpoint Mm -hmm. but then when i look back at it uh there was a way that i could be connected to the team Mm -hmm. i was a party guy knew where the clubs the party were. Guy. I knew which clubs to go to in Portland on which night I would have house parties, you know, ones that the guys can come to. Um, I was always the fun guy, you know, getting everybody drinks, everybody loosen up. You know, that was that was kind of my connection with those guys when I wasn't playing. Um, and then when I was playing, you know, I had already kind of built that little bit of reputation that, you know, I was I was going to go out. I was going to have fun. You know, I was going to connect with some teammates this way. You know, if you wanted to find a club on a Wednesday, I know which one to go to, the low-key spot to go to. Um, yeah, I, I kind of took that upon myself. Yeah. You were the – but those, those role players <clears throat> are important. Mm-hmm. You're uh, – who was it? Not Coach K. Somebody – some – uh, another basketball coach, I think at the college level, in their book, they were talking about the glue guys. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're with your talent, you were more than just a glue guy. But because you couldn't contribute to the team, do you think you would have been the party guy or the guy, the fun guy, if you hadn't been injured? Uh, if I had been injured and had a little bit more direction, um, I'm not sure I would have dedicated as much energy into that mm. part of my life because um, when I look back at it now like I should have been the guy who was going to the gym two times a day you know just getting better doing what I can to 
to uh, not hurt myself, you know, not drinking as much. You know, alcohol is, is not good on your body, you know. Being the better diet guy, being the more um, just stern, going by the book, doing what I can to better myself. Um, I think I put a lot of energy into stuff when I actually enjoy it and know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, just at that time, I didn't have that direction or I physically couldn't be out there to do some of these things. So that energy went elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was your it was your way of connecting. It's what mm-hmm. you did the best that you knew at that time. Yeah. And maybe because you just didn't get a little bit more coaching or mentorship, it mm-hmm. it led you down a, a different path. And, and it might have been fine. Uh, but was that when the alcohol entered into your life or, so you started seeking help during your rookie season, but when did the drinking come into the picture? Uh, it was started more of my rookie season. So it was pretty early on. Yeah. I mean, I had money and now I had a lot of access to it. Um, and I wasn't playing. So you know, that, that party and just started coming from, look, you got all this free time. It's not like you got to go to practice tomorrow. All you got to do is go and get your knees stretched out and do a couple of leg exercises and get a lift in, get in the steam room. Like, I'm not performing. I'm not around the team as much as I would be if I was playing. So in my head, it was okay to go out, you know, and, and drink all night and then just show up and do what I need to do and go home. Mm-hmm. So that was another way of kind of keeping to myself as well. Um, that I, I started doing a lot of this stuff and then trying to hide it. Um, mm-hmm. So now I, I even I stayed away from the teammates and being around the team more. You know, now they're on the road, so I'm doing rehab with just me in the gym. You know, so you're not always traveling I'm with not the team. Always traveling, you're behind no. and you're by yep. yourself, and you're. Yep. So then, who? But in, in, at that age, though, because during my time in college, there were other athletes there um, that had a lot of issues with alcohol. But at that age, you can mask it because it's cool to party. And at that time, I saw a couple of several of my friends and I thought, well, they look like they might have issues, but then they're the house that everybody wants to go and party at. Mm-hmm. So they're the cool kids on campus. They're, they're the social butterflies. Like if, if, if you're looking for a party Sunday through Saturday, mm-hmm. their house is the one to go to. Mm-hmm. So at that age, like you can play it off yeah. so well and, and mask it. Yeah. I mean, that was... It was the idea thing to do, you know, especially, yeah. you know, being professional. I had the VIP section roped off, <laughs> you know, like it was a bunch of people around there, lots of girls, lots of alcohol, mm-hmm. lots of fun. And even at times, you'd be like, hey, make sure, you know, they're not bringing the sparklers over here. We don't want people taking pictures over there, mm. you know. So now it's private, you know, that's very appealing to, you know, a lot of athletes, a lot of celebrities, you know, you, you want to do that stuff and not be seen. So, right. you know, it was hiding in plain sight kind of, you know. You expected me yeah. to be the party guy. You expected me to be at the nice restaurant. 
or, you know, in the club somewhere in the corner, you wouldn't even know um, that I was there. But you knew if you asked me, I'd tell you exactly where to go, where to be at. You were the guy to go to. I don't know if I was the guy. You were one of the guys. I was a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And at what point do you remember where alcohol ends up turning into something of a more serious issue? So it goes from fun Mm -hmm. to now, like, to now dependency um well there's two situations um the first one was kind of i just remember and this is not um this in portland um the first one when i realized that i had to go out get drunk and i would take two vicodin two percocet two uh pm tablets advil or tylenol um, with two Benadryl, and I had to chase that down with alcohol just to sleep about four hours a night, and that mm. happened for a good six months, and I was bulimic at the time. Mm. Um, so those issues, and I remember you and I both talking about our own uh, issues at the panel. So that mm-hmm. started during your rookie season, very early. Uh, not my rookie season. Oh, okay. Not, but it was when about like my, my third, fourth season, because it was when the surgeries, you know, um, to start piling up back to back to back. So it was around Um, third or fourth season. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And, um, you know, I had so many pills just left over from the surgeries. You don't even think about it. And then when I looked at it, it was like, I mean, it was time outside of that initial surgery where I was still taking, you know, these pills every four hours. Yeah. You know, and even if I wasn't in pain, I was just so used to it. I was just so dependent on it. Um, that that's when I kind of looked at it like, okay, this is a problem. Um, and then uh, after Miami season. Um, that was in 2015. 13, 14. 13, 14. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I got arrested for a domestic violence situation where I really looked at it and was like, I'm, I'm a person that I don't even recognize. Mm-hmm. Um where I ended up going to rehab and uh, was on probation for three years. Um, I got claimed for six months. Um, but that situation, um, I really, like, that. I'm not that type of guy. I feel like I would never, um, I feel like I didn't have it in me to put my hands on a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened. And when I look back at it, like, one of these days, I got to have this conversation with my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really... I couldn't look at myself for a while because that's just not, I I don't see that as me. That Mm -hmm. definitely wasn't me and I lost myself. Um, And that was a big, big moment when I had to realize what all of the alcohol and the drugs and just my way of thinking and the way of handling myself, uh, the path that I was leading towards. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think that moment that you're talking about the incident with your ex-girlfriend, you know, not to keep delving into the past, but I think it's important to understand. I think a lot of people will just look at a, look at one event or one incident and just want to label people and say like, he did this. But for me, I think it's important to delve into the past because it explains a lot of the things that lead up to that moment that might push somebody over the edge and explain the struggles or pain or trauma or whatever it is 
And it's the only time I'm going to bring up my notes so I can, <laughs> because your injury history is actually more extensive than mine. But so you had that wrist surgery right before you go to college. Mm-hmm. Next year you get drafted. Mm-hmm. And now I know that you thought it was going to be a simple surgery, mm-hmm. but you end up, you wake up, they tell you, the doctors tell you after your right knee surgery, you're going to be out for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. All right. So then that, that goes down. So you're out. You finally, you come back, finally make your debut about a year and a half after you get drafted. Mm-hmm. That's January, 2009. In your NBA debut, you only played 13 minutes mm-hmm. against the Lakers. And then you leave with a foot injury. Got rolled by ankle. Yep. And was out for like two weeks. So you were out for two weeks, but then, okay. So you're out for two weeks, you come back. And then the next month, or maybe it was like a couple of weeks later, you injure your knee in that game, right? Yeah, I think that season I ended up playing like 20 games. And then, uh, oh, wait, no. Yeah, I chipped my, uh, you chip your, I chipped my kneecap before you chip All-Star knee? break. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, that's my my real first season. Yeah. Well, I, I dealt with a that lot was your of, real season, but then yeah, you I got. I dealt with a lot of knickknack injuries that season. Yeah, so you, you chip your kneecap. And then you're out for three weeks. Okay, so then you're out. You make your debut, but you're out again for another season. Then it's your third season in 2009 and 10. You have a really, really good season. Yeah, that's Great why start. I played 20 games, and then. And then in December, so it's I not broke even my kneecap. You broke your kneecap, and it's like that's that's another traumatizing event. You're carried off onto the stretcher. You fracture your left patella, and again, you're out for the rest I of the mean, year. So I can't even say fracture because fracture is like literally my kneecap broke in half. It was like oh, so the top like of my head it. empty and then bottom of my oh kneecap. Oh, my God. Yeah. So then you're out for the rest of that year. Mm-hmm. So that's 2009 to 2010. And I could have possibly came back, but then I refractured it. Right. And then so that when you were carried off the stretcher, you fractured – you broke your – snapped mm-hmm. your patella. Less than a year later – in November 2010, then you have a microfracture surgery on your left knee, right? Yes. So that's marks your third NBA season cut short due to a knee injury. Mm-hmm. And then another one. And then, then we go to fast forward to the next season. Mm-hmm. You get another. You get two more surgeries. Yep. And then that's February 2012, which is now your fifth season in the NBA. Mm-hmm. You have arthroscopic surgery on your right knee, which is now your fourth surgery. 17 days later, you have a similar situation, which would happen with your, what, what was supposed to be arthroscopy, but then mm-hmm. they go in, we've got to do the whole serious microfracture surgery again. Yep. 17 days after your other surgery. Yep. And then the next month after that fifth surgery, and then you get cut. Yep. And now I'm back in Indiana by myself, feel like I've let, I don't know, everybody down, my family, myself, just expectations, um, people in the basketball community. Like, I, I really got in a depressed state at that point after being cut. Just, you know, just the number one draft pick, I felt like a failure. Um, and I had no idea what to do next. You know, I kind of cut a lot of people off changed my number and I remember like I think I I didn't leave the house but to go to the grocery store for like two weeks 
again, because it's hard for you to hide too. Yeah. People can spot you from a mile yep. away. And I definitely felt like people was making fun of me everywhere I went. Like I'm going everywhere I grocery store, hood on. Every time I left the house, I'm driving with a hood on. I just didn't want nobody to see me. I bought a house in the woods so I can just get away. In Indiana? Yeah. That's a, have you, have you been able to talk with anyone about those injuries? Because I, I know that in particular, mental health and psychology, like anybody that talks to me, they know that Prim is passionate about mental health and, and psychology. And I, I have been in therapy. I got therapy. I started it around 30, 31. I continue to do it. I think I'm just a firm believer that if we have teachers in school and coaches in sports, like why not have a life coach, right? Just mm -hmm. to check in and do whatever. And the one thing that I've learned, because a lot of people, and I think athletes do this, and particularly male athletes, they will diminish things that they experience because it's like, well, I don't want to get help because somebody else had it much harder than me. Mm -hmm. you know. But I, I've learned that pain is pain. It doesn't matter where it comes from. And trauma is trauma. And different things can be traumatic for one person and, and not for another. But have you talked to anyone or have you been able to process the fact that your injuries were in some ways traumatic? Um, I've been through some therapy sessions where, you know, that's that was kind of a, a part and said. But uh, recently, no. Um, you know, I, I haven't continued a therapy session or some that's actually went through them like, you know, you still got stuff you need to deal with from these actual injuries. Yeah. Um, I have not. Because I think, and this is just why these interviews are so important, because it's it's offering people the human humanistic side of being an athlete. And the most difficult thing that an athlete will ever endure while they're playing is injury, mm -hmm. especially when it happens so severe and so quick. Because we rely on our physical bodies and our physicality and our, our talent, that leads us to success. And when our vessel shuts down, when our car shuts down, we can't do anything. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how, how you could be Albert Einstein, like that's not going to get you anywhere. You, you know, you can dunk a ball like nobody else, but if you're hurt, then your whole world falls apart. That's um, kind of what you said when we first started, which I agree with. You know, the sport um, that a lot of athletes come, it becomes them because you got to think. So now I'm, I'm playing basketball. Um, my finances are good. So now I'm taking care of my family. I'm taking care of some friends. You know, I have houses I got to provide for. I have business things that I'm involved in. Um, and all this came from basketball, mm -hmm. you know, and so when that's taken away and when that check stops coming, it's like, okay, every aspect of my life was affected by me getting this check from playing basketball. And when that's taken away, like, whoa, all these bridges are breaking down now. Hold on. How am I going to provide for this? How am I going to do this? You know, these people are only really hanging out with me because I was this celebrity from basketball, yep. you know? It's a, it's a issue that a lot of athletes struggle with. And I mm -hmm. didn't realize how big it was until literally like every, every interview, there's an athlete that says, well, when I retired, a lot of people stopped calling me. Yeah. When I, when I left the game or when I got injured, you know, people, people, I've, people got mad at me. Or when I first got into 
professional, you know, the NFL, NBA, MLB, whatever it is. People you have people coming out of the woodwork and all of a sudden everybody's your best friend because yeah. they want something from you. Yeah. So it's, it's sport ends up being your livelihood in so many ways, your family, your community, your something to hold on, something to do. Maybe when you're, when your parents were going through a divorce or you moved into a big city or, you know, and I'm sure you've thought about it. Um, but it's something that I can relate to. Uh, but when you look back at your injury history and how it, I mean, it's not like you sprained a couple of ankles. I mean, your stuff was super serious. Mm-hmm. I know there's been a couple moments that you can pinpoint where, well, I'm not sure if that led to that, but it's something that you circle, but can, can you, pinpoint anything have you thought about why you you in, um, got injured the way you did well when i go back to that first one um the one thing we did i, I was always had a leg length differential so i've actually had my other wrist my left wrist surgery in like the seventh grade um and then in the sixth grade i had a hip fracture when I was growing so fast. So basically my leg was literally falling out my hip and they caught it at the last moment. I got two pins in my hip. So that's another surgery, in six, two yes. surgeries in sixth grade? Uh, yeah, sixth grade and seventh grade. Holy cow. So you've had seven surgeries. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. And that started, so, so those two mm-hmm. started in sixth grade. Yeah. So leg lift differential um, in my right hip from that hip surgery. So I always had a little limp. Uh, mm-hmm. Just growing up, so my body just kind of got used to it. Um, even when I was here at Ohio State, I had orthotics, but you know it made sure I still had my little limp because that's just how my body was set up. Um, and when I got to Portland, the first thing we did was fix that with orthotics. So there's shoes that I still have that, like the back of the shoe would be like this, but then my right one would be like this because the orthotic was so big. And so that's what happened against the Lakers when I rolled my ankle. My orthotic mm-hmm. was so big, I literally rolled out of my shoe. I've had um, orthotics because basically, yeah, your the orthotics are so thick; it's almost like wearing a heel. Yeah, and your foot is—you don't get the protection from the sides to yes. prevent you from rolling over. Yeah. So, yeah. So you think hmm. about it, my body was so used to uh, that little limp that when I fixed it right away, now it was a hitch. And so now all this pressure was put on uh, the other leg. Hmm. And then having that surgery, I compensated. So now between surgery and just how my body was just healing from that one, and now my body so used to compensate, and I'm putting all that pressure on this other knee where... I'm doing stuff and my kneecap breaks in half. And then just the complications from um, the wire in my kneecap to just how my knee was. That's where the other microfractures came from after that. It is the, – the body is an ecosystem and it will always change and shift to accommodate deficiencies is what mm-hmm. I've learned. Uh, and – I was talking to one of my good friends. He's a renowned physical therapist, and he works he he works with the Canadian national basketball team. Ton of professional athletes, and I was talking to him about your injury history because I I wanted to come in, and I I was thinking about it. I said because I've thought about my own 
history. I had two stress, two stress fractures in my back by the time I was 17. Fortunately, I was able to hide it when I was being recruited by colleges, mm-hmm. got into Duke, had three surgeries, right shoulder, August, next month, right knee, the September 11th, and then the next October 18th, the left knee. So I had three consecutive surgeries in a row. And that is the reason I, I was telling you before the interview that I found out 10 years later about how unhappy I was about how my career ended. So I ended up making a comeback, which started in 2015. Tennis is tennis is easy. Like you can actually play professional. Well, no, I meant like you can play professional tennis without like in the NBA or NFL, you can't just go out and play and get picked up by a team again. You know what I mean? There's, there's a lot more uh, things that you have to go through hoops that you have to go through. But, um, but I, when I did my comeback, I was like, I looked at my history of injuries and there's so much more information about nutrition and diet and strength and conditioning. I said, I'm going to do it differently this time around. And so I, I trained smarter. I trained less, but smarter, right? Uh, back when, when you and I were competing and playing back long time ago, it was all about volume. Now it's about quality over quantity, right? There's more about strength and conditioning and prehab and rehab and all that stuff. I think the like Pilates and yoga is so much more needed now because it's about, you know, how loose you are with all these movements and not just how powerful you are in these movements. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So my comeback ended up with another surgery. I ended up tearing my labrum and my rotator cuff and I ended up getting surgery. But my point is, is that for me, I think that there's two things. I think that my engine does not fit my frame. So I think my engine is actually too strong. It's almost like a Ferrari engine, but stuck in a Pinto shell. (laughs) So then there's that part. I also don't think I'm the best technical athlete. I'm a really good athlete, but I don't think I'm the, I don't have the best technique with tennis, which led to a lot of my injuries. And then here's a third component is that not, I'm not blaming anybody for my injuries, but the information wasn't there at the time and the supporting staff around you can make wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. And I found that out when I was, I think it was 17 years old. I had those two stress fractures. I went to the best sports doctor, ortho, in Tampa, Florida at the time, worked with all the Bucks, all those professional athletes. I go to him twice. And he's like, I'll send you to PT. So I sit there for like two months going through PT, and I can hardly get up off of a chair. My mom's like, we got to go back to the doctor. She, I don't remember this, but she told me this. And she's, she said, you start crying. And it's like, I'm not going back to that doctor. Mm-hmm. We found another doctor, did a simple x-ray, just a simple x-ray. And he's like, your back is broken. You have two stress, two stress fractures. One is cold, meaning it was, it was active, but then healed. And the other one is still hot. And it's because that one doctor who was supposedly the best in town yeah. didn't do x-rays. And I share that story because even the best can make mistakes. And we put, as athletes, we put our health and our livelihoods and we we trust these people to take care of us. Mm -hmm. But even the best of them make mistakes and make wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. And do you ever think about your journey Mm -hmm. and about like things that you would do differently and things that 
you look at how things were handled and you say, that wasn't right. Well, that's kind of why, you know, I'm here. And while like nowadays, I, I try to do a lot of speaking to young athletes and just the people, um, because I want to make this point that, um, especially when you're an athlete, but as any person, you need to be more invested in yourself. You know, we, we delegate a lot of things to other people, which we're not professionals or right. the best at, we're not the best doctors. So we listen to the doctor, but you need to understand everything going on with you as much as possible. You know, I mean, I'll start with finances. You need to understand this. You got a financial person, but you need to understand what they're doing, at least to a point where, you know, you can make decisions and you can give the final yes or no. You need to understand your body. You need to have conversations with multiple doctors. You need to understand, okay, look, this is what one person says. This is what another person says. And let me take all this information and make the best decision for me. So when something happens, you can't blame somebody else or feel like you want to blame somebody yeah. else. Um, so, you know, we need to start taking more into our lives and educate ourselves because I'm like, okay, well, maybe if I would have asked more questions or if I would have let them know, all right, if there's other things you can do, um, don't just go ahead and give me a surgery and I'm out for the full year. How right. about we talk about this and talk about my options, but at least you guys got to see exactly right. what's going on now right. let me get another look from somebody else and see okay is there a possibility i can play through this or do something else you know i might not have made that decision but at least i would have felt better right. in how everything ended up if i was more knowledgeable and i asked the right questions or you know just tried to learn as much as i can about the situation and i mean yeah it's hard you don't it sounds obvious sometimes when you're talking about it, like, yeah, you got to ask more questions, but you don't know what questions to ask if you don't yeah. know about the information. Like, you don't know what you don't know. Yes. And that's a huge problem at the youth sports level because, mm -hmm. you know, you, basketball, AAU, I mean, just the overtraining, the over-specialization, kids – playing 10 hours of sports at seven years old and a lot injuries. of things is, you know there and i'm hearing this a lot is it's so much specialization um but they're not playing so like i mean i don't oh. know about well in basketball these guys are working out so much they're doing individual workouts to the point where it's like um a lot of these kids are really good individually but they don't know how to play the team sport because they're not actually oh. playing five on five they're just working out with their trainer you know for an hour and a half two hours here and then another two hours in the afternoon it's like uh, you know you play a sport where there's other guys in competition. That's uh, crazy. You probably should do a lot more five-on-five, three-on-three, actually competing so you can get the natural feel. So a lot of guys know how to play individually, but they don't have that feel that mm -hmm. you would expect an elite player to have. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole – I've also heard – I because I'm fascinated and, and youth sports is so important to me, especially like what happened with my – my experience, but then in terms of AAU, I hear that the focus is on winning. There's more money. So now instead of making sure players are developing at all the different positions, you just stick them in one position and that's all they know and that's all they learn, which affects the college game. Mm -hmm. So they have a less less of a foundation and less of an understanding about or less skills, I should say, um, in terms of just being an overall basketball yes. well, player. Man, because you, like, what, what is a high school kid doing with a trainer? Yeah. Like, what about your high school coach? What about your AU? These are the yeah. times you're supposed to learn the whole game. Right. You know? Um, 
in college. You're even learning the better part of the game. You're getting better individually. You're getting more of a team game. And then when you're professional, that's when, or, I mean, college, you might have a trainer outside when you're done playing and you're getting better in that way. But um, these kids at high school, they're, and it costs so much money. Yes, you know? these days like, it does. It uh, does. You mean you're getting a tutor outside of school where you're supposed to learn, and now you need a trainer outside of the team where you're supposed to learn as right. well, you know? So, I mean, that's when we got to put a little bit more on the coaches and on the people that's actually supposed to teach them. Like, if you're going to teach my son how to be a basketball player, teach him. Don't make me feel like I got to go out to somebody else to teach him individually how to be a basketball player. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's a little thought how I think about it. Yeah, no, I mean, because your support system, we put so much trust into the coaches and the Mm -hmm. supporting staff. So if you're doing that, why are you not asking the question like, well, how are you going to help this point guard on the team? Well, how are you going to help the center? Mm -hmm. You know, we got to put more responsibility on these people that we trust in these certain situations of power and ask more questions, be more involved and be like, okay, I, I understand you're supposed to be a specialist at, at this, but, you know, I want to understand how are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, how are you going to do this? How is, you know, how am I going to fit in this equation? And, and that's when I look at everything in our lives, we need to be able to put more on ourselves and be like, okay, well, if I'm going to put myself in this situation or I'm going to work with you, how are you going to best help me, you know, figure out, you know, every, not every aspect, but know as much as you can about the situation that you put yourself in. Mm -hmm. And that way you can't blame nobody else but you when something else happens. Because I like to say, I I don't want to blame somebody for this and this because I'm older and more mature now, but deep down in my head, it's like, I didn't even know. And I trusted you. And we yeah. all have that little feel like, yeah, I trusted that motherfucker. It was, was kind of his right. fault, you know. But right. I won't say that now because I'm I know wrong. you can't say that now. <laughs> but I, I, I had this conversation with my buddy who's a physical therapist. And he get he, he works at the elite level. And he can't say and be honest publicly about what's going on. Because by being honest, that means you end up throwing people under the yes. bus a little bit. Because there are bad physicians and doctors and trainers and coaches. We're not talking at the AAU or youth sports level. We're talking about at the professional, whether it's professional tennis, whether it's NFL, NBA, MLB, there are just mistakes happen. And I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing everybody. There's, there's a lot of great professionals, trained, good physicians, coaches out there. But just like there are good people in life, there are also others that are not so trained and not making great decisions. So if you like, can you, is there an example or a moment with regarding your injury history that you said, if I could go back and do something differently, I would have. And I, and I asked that in the context of not blaming somebody, but using your story to help educate others so we can learn from your story, other my story as well, so people don't make people people. I don't want to say mistake. Mistakes are a strong word, but we can just learn and get better. Well, I mean, just from injuries and being a professional, um, when I look back at it, why not take that time away from the sport to gain an advantage mentally? Mm-hmm. So um, you're not playing. So 
sit in on every practice, sit in on film sessions, you know, add something to the game so I can't run around. Just dribble, add something to my handles, become better that way. Bring out a chair, sit there and just shoot shots, you know, get my jump shot better, get my release better. Like, add something to the game away from that injury um, and just try to take a, a little bit more mental advantage. I mean, I, I know that's tough now, but, you know, the guys who are the best of the best are the ones who are dedicating and putting as much into their profession that they should. The ones who are eating right, the ones who are adding extra time and quality time, um, not just doing two workouts to do two workouts, but actually coming in and, and adding one thing to their game. You know, mm -hmm. like if you're going to come in at night, I'm working on this one hook shot. I'm not going to sit here two hours at night and just get up everything. No, I'm, I'm coming in here for a reason. Purpose. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, and now realize, okay, I was at this highest level, but I wanted to be at that great level. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the little things that I would add or I would have done. I, I would have paid attention to the team. You know, I would have been more of a coach while I was sitting out. Why not? I'm not doing anything anyways, you know. I, mm -hmm. And you have all this free time as a professional athlete. You, you act like you don't. Or, But, you know, if you're working out in the morning times, your day is usually done by 1, 2 p.m. Right. You know, so There's why not add that little bit of extra? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be sitting at home or doing whatever anyways. Did you not have coaches saying, hey, you should come in or, hey, you should work on this? Or did people just assume because you're so talented and tall and athletic and gifted that, hey, he, he'll be fine? Um, I mean, I, I think it was so many injuries and it was such an up and down. I mean, I, I know um, that rookie year, you know, they, they really tried. Um, to have me along and have me on, on as many road trips as possible. Um, but then that young mindset, I fought it, you know. It was like, well, I mean, why do you want me traveling when I can get this work done every day? We got all these amenities here, then on the road when we got the little hotel fitness center, mm. you know. I mean, why would I sit here and just look at this practice when I can be doing all of my stuff right now, you know, and that, I mean, I just, I didn't have somebody in my life at that time that was being like, Greg, maybe you should listen to them. Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should uh, put more time in your craft. Um, but I didn't have that person around me and I wasn't thinking that mentally. Um, I, I wasn't that advanced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so as you go through your career and you sign a one-year deal with the Heat and then it looks like, at least on paper, it looks like things are, hey, he, he's coming back, he's not injured, you know, with the Heat, they reach the NBA Finals, you know, um, but with everything that's going on and then that incident happens with the ex-girlfriend, what, what was going on that year? So... I've said this once before, um, that year was probably the funnest as just like being on that team. That's That team was just crazy. You know, they already won two yeah. championships. You know, the eyes were always on them. And so I came into that situation like, don't mess nothing up. Like I told myself I couldn't eat out. I can only eat out once a week. 
because I'm in freaking Miami. Like, no. I never went over to South Beach unless I was going out. And um, I rarely went out there. I, I tried to do everything to not be that guy. Um, and so I, I remember I saw a picture of myself and they were like, what is this guy thinking? And I'm like, I was shooting the free throw in Miami Heat church. I was like, that was the loneliest I felt. I had great teammates on that team, great dudes, great organization, great coaches. Um, I was living with my ex at the time, and I don't even think we talked that much. You know, I was elsewhere. I was messing with multiple women every week, and this girl's living with me. Um, like, I had all these guys. I had the Ray Allens, the Shane Battiers, Brian D. Wade, Chris Bosh, Birdman, Udonis Haslam. Yeah. Like, Spolstra. all these outlets, Spolstra, that I could come to that's been through it all. And I wouldn't, I would barely talk in the locker room. Um, I barely opened up to anybody. I just kind of kept to myself. And it felt like it was just, it was just bubbling, you know? Cause I, was you it know, because you were. F- you were afraid because of everything that had happened in the past and you yeah, just didn't want like to mess I, anything up? I didn't want to mess anything up. I just wanted to get my championship. Like, this is what I thought when I come out. I want to get my championship ring. I'm going to get it fit for my middle finger. If anybody got anything to say to me, I'm flipping them off with my championship ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you had been through injuries, so you were trying to stay healthy, because mm-hmm. you had learned what happened in Portland of people spying on you, you were trying to be good, mm-hmm. and you were trying to just – I didn't want to mess up what they had going. They already won two championships. Don't mess that up. Mm -hmm. Just ride the wave. I I didn't um, give it my all um, on the court as well because I didn't want to do too much and re-injure myself. So to try to go get the extra work, I'm like, nah, that would be too much. They told you only this amount of playing time. You know, I, because I your body smart. had yeah, failed. My body, body had right. before. It had, so. and, and doctors may have steered you in a wrong direction. So you had kind of lost a little bit of trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm just I'm diving in. So I'm able to kind of dissect yeah. why, why you ended up doing things. So now you're isolated or, or insulated in this bubble. And I, I mean, I felt it, you know. Um, and then uh, I was really a... Uh, indulger so like i wouldn't drink you know six days but that seventh day i'd be drinking all especially if it was a day off i'd be drinking all day you know um if i was going to eat bad then i was going to eat bad you know i'm not a cheat meal guy i'm a cheat day guy you know so um when i would do something it, it would be over the top so a lot of that stuff, but then I would hide it so well. So it was like six days I'm hiding everything that when I finally do it, it's like I'm doing it big. There's a lot of athletes, uh, people in general like that. There's actually a lot of successful people I would say like that. I, I am very much the same way where it's kind of an all or nothing personality, yes. a person of extremes, mm-hmm. Where, but in some ways it ends up backfiring because if you limit yourself – so it's like, I'm not going out. I'm not going to do a cheat meal. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to focus. I don't want to hurt myself. I'm doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out and bubbles to the surface at the end of the week. And then that's when it's like, it's too much mentally to handle. You got to release all that energy somewhere. Yes. Got it. And for me, yeah. I, mean, I felt like that whole year, I just held so much in, um, so much anger, so much thought, um, just so many up and down situations in my head. 
that that's where that situation with my ex just kind of, it was just an explosion of me. And then I became like, I've barely gotten fights with men. So to mm-hmm. fight somebody who I've had a relationship with at that time, um, it, I, I, like I said, I didn't recognize the person I was. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that night? What, what I happens? Not, um, Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, so at that point, I know you say was one of the events that kind of triggered you to kind of wake yourself up and yeah. and let you know that something clearly wasn't right, that you needed to change some things. Right. And what happened? So what happened after that? Um, so just um, had to go to rehab. I had to really look at some things. Um, and what kind of what kinds of things were you were you doing at this point? Um, honestly, working out, rehabbing, just still trying to figure out if I still wanted to play basketball anymore. Um, was trying to figure out who I was. Um, and then I ended up going to China. Um, I played a year in China. Um, it was different. Uh, (laughs) different experience in the nba yes um the travel Mm. i remember one of the the plane rides we had you know the three um exit row seats Mm -hmm. it was a seven feet me seven one coach and then a a six nine bigger center on the team it was us three and it was just like we were all like Come on, man. <laughs> you couldn't spread this out. Um, but, I mean, the food, the culture, um, being that far away, um, meeting Chinese people. Oh, gosh. That was when they would uh, ask for the server. Was it Fuyang? Fuyang? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was the biggest eye opener. I'm like, she's coming. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> that was the number one. I was like, you guys are impatient. What's going on? She's coming. <laughs> um, no, just uh, that experience was was definitely different. But then to come back and still have to deal with being on probation, um, you know, uh, I didn't want to get in trouble. You know, I, I didn't want to end up going to jail for i mean i spent one day in that thing i would never want to go back um and it wasn't even the full 24 hours so um that's one thing that changed in me you know i I was in there and i was like i never want to do this again um but also uh you know my uh girlfriend at the time being pregnant um now knowing that you know i'm gonna have a baby on the way I really need to figure out who I am and the person I'm going to be and lay the groundworks. Well, you know, groundworks are already laid, but who, like, what path am I going to go down to set up for when this baby girl comes? Mm-hmm. You know, um, what life do I want to have or build towards when she's here? Um, and that was probably the biggest change for me is, is my baby girl is realizing, you know, I've done some things in my life. You can't hide it. Yeah. Just own it. Um, and be ready for, you know, she's going to find a lot of stuff out about you. But the person you are now, you can show her that. Mm. You know, hearsay, you know, she's going to hear some things. She's going to ask some questions. But, you know, 
like being an example of the person that I want her to see, that's the biggest thing that made me change and made me the person that I am now and how I think and maneuver through life. I, I think that that's, that's awesome. And it's fun. You light up about Ohio State and you certainly light up about your daughter. Yeah. And I can tell that that is your, that brings you purpose. In that life. is my, she is my why now, you know? Oh. So, um, before, you know, I, I would just make decisions to kind of hide, but now my decisions are made when I know that somehow she's going to find out and knowing that you know, I got to create this life for her. I'm not doing anything bad or negative that's going to affect my family life. Um, and I want to be the person that she can always smile at and call Greg, Gregory Odin, or <laughs> dad. <laughs> <laughs> can I, so when you were dealing with your alcoholism and dependency with all that stuff, for anybody who is out there and going through their own struggles, how are you able to get out of it? Or do you still struggle with that? Do you, I mean, where are you? And because uh -huh. I, I want to lay the road back for people who are, who need help. Yeah. I and, mean, for mine, for one was rehab, um, you know, just started drinking in high school. Um, I wasn't drinking every day in high school or college. Um, but I was still drinking. Um, and really, uh, when I went to rehab and then for six months I was clean, like it kind of made me feel like, okay, you can, you can actually mm -hmm. stop. Um, and what year was that? Was that, when did, was it right after the It was incident? right after the incident. Okay. Um, well, actually I thought it was right when I got back from China. Mm, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but, I'm not going to say I am never had a drink again, mm -hmm. um, but I learned some stuff about me. I learned I really don't like hard liquor. Like, I, my next day hangovers from, you know, dark or light liquor is terrible. So now when I drink, I only drink wine. Mm. You know, I might have a beer every now and then, but I don't like it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I've learned things about myself that kind of brought me to, okay, well, now you can kind of handle things differently. You know, now, you know, I'm not doing excess. I'm not a college drinker. I'm not just drinking whatever you put in front of me or, you know, taking 10,000 shots. No. What do you think that's allowed you to, to put the brakes on? What do you think that allowed me to put the brakes yeah, on? Yeah, like what helped you? Is it is it mindfulness? Is it a sense of relief? Is it coming to grips with whatever happened in basketball, like what allowed you to heal, right? Because everybody has different coping mechanisms. And for me, for, for me, it was, you know, it was, I used food as a way to control or to numb. I talked about, you know, my eating disorder, you know, it was more restricting of food that I, it allowed me to numb anything that I was feeling for you. It was alcohol, but what gave you, you know what I mean? What gave you, you're like, it's okay. I don't have to use those things. Like I feel at peace with myself. Well, you just sense. said it. I'm not trying to numb anything, you know? Um, yeah, I still have injuries that I'm dealing with, but I'm not trying to numb my body anymore. I'm not trying to numb my thoughts. Like if I was to go out and have a few glasses of wine with some friends, I'm just there to have a good time with my friends. I'm not sitting there and try to hide something. 
where I'm not drinking just to finally be like, well, I'm not going to not think about this or not talk or, or speak about what's on my mind. I'm not trying to numb, you know, these negative thoughts going through my head right now. I'm just trying to be happy and trying to enjoy life. So when I look at it that like I'm not playing uh, 40 minutes a game or trying to play 40 minutes a game and killing my body that to the point where I'm just drinking tonight where I ain't got to think about my back hurting all night, you know? <laughs> like, I, I'm not going through life in that aspect anymore. But for me, um, it goes back to, I really think that at that time, a lot of times I was really trying to numb. I was trying to numb my thoughts. I was trying to numb my body from hurting. Um, I was trying to numb the outside noise that I would hear either from social media or from the expectations I had, you know, um, I'm trying to satisfy what this fan said to me or what I thought the fans feel of me. I, I wasn't trying to numb all those voices. Um, and now I'm just trying to live life and be happy for me. And I think at that point, that's when I kind of, looked at myself and be like, Dude, I don't have to do anything for anybody else. I'm yeah. not trying to kill all that. I'm just trying to be happy. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's what kind of got me into a better mindset. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm not going to say that therapists and going to AA meetings and uh, being more open and honest with the people in my life that I trust, that I can have these conversations with, um, those help me as well mm -hmm. and still continue to help me. Mm hmm. Um, it sounds like your it was a shift in perspective because it feels like for so much of your life, you had been put in a position where you're doing things for other people. And remember when I first started um, and I talked about uh, draft day when yeah. I was listening to them people and I felt like I was just doing it because that's what they told me to do. And that's yeah. what, that's the analogy I like to go back to. It was like, I wish that day, you know, I, I felt like I set the tone uh, instead of, you know, celebrating and enjoying that moment with my whole entire family. I was just trying to do what somebody asked of me and I didn't enjoy that moment. I think that's going up so high. Mm -hmm. And then that was the turn literally before I even walked upstairs to shake David Stern's hand. I was already doing that. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, you, especially because of your personality, because you, you are so warm and gentle and you ended up doing things for other people because you don't want to let them down. And now it's like a shift in perspective where you're like, it's okay to be a little selfish. I'm going to do me. I'm going to focus on me. And what, and also like, as you were moving through your career, as we kind of put a bow on everything because of your status, I feel like a lot of people kind of put, slapped labels on you. Like he's a tall guy. He's the athletic guy. He's the next Bill, next Bill Russell. He's the decade player of the year and then bust, the biggest bust or whatever. So I wanted, when I came into the, this interview, I said, you know, Greg deserves to write his own story rather than let everybody write his story. And there's so many, the articles that are out there, are your words, but they've been created by somebody else. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the fun thing about video is like you yeah. can, we can hear it from Greg himself. Yeah. So if I were to give you the opportunity, we know what happened in the past, but now it's about the present and the future. Mm -hmm. What would you like for people to know about your story, the way you see it as today, 
and who Greg Oden is? Um, I mean, I, I think we spoke on it. Uh, my story, it was a lot of highs really quick. And then for me, um, I felt like, well, in my path, there were lows. Um, dealing with uh, just a little bit of addiction, um, isolation, depression, um, and honestly, not knowing who I was. Um, but now I kind of look at it because of my daughter. You know, I, I have to be me. I have to enjoy life. I have to be happy. Um, and I have to do these things so my daughter can see what that type of life looks like. Excuse me. <coughs> God, where'd that come from? <laughs> it's because I've been talking to you too much. Um, but no, like I, I enjoy, you know, just the times I get with her um, and then going through life, making better decisions, being able to look back on my life and be like, I will usually handle things like this. I've had these experiences. Now let's be better. You know, let's let's do the hard thing. Let's make the hard choice. You know, learn about these things. Take time to do stuff. Gosh. <coughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, that's up. Do you need some coffee <laughs> or something to drink? It's right. just like a little tickle. No, mm -hmm. I totally understand. <coughs> We're about, I basically just dried up your throat is basically uh, what I did. No, you told me we weren't going to be here to 1.30. I looked up and I'm like, does that say? I know. I looked at the time. I was like, oh, my God. I got to <laughs> <laughs> um, No. There's only 32 minutes left on the card. No, so. we're, okay. we're almost done. No, I, I just I just really want to be happy and be a better person, better example for my daughter. Um, but I also want to be a, a person of happiness, of positivity, after all my ups and downs that I'm looking at life in a positive light. Um, any situation um, with a little bit of education, a little thought process, and doing what's simply best for you um, – just bring a little smile to somebody's face, a little positivity and kindness that I feel like this world is needing. Um, and that's the type of person I want to be. That's the type of person I'm going to be. Um, I'm going to help out this world as much as I can. And I'm just going to enjoy life from that aspect. I mean, if my story can help somebody, inspire somebody to be better or make a better decision, that's what I'm here for. I enjoy, you know, using my life experiences to um, do that. So, motivational speaking anybody wants to i can help shout um, out book <laughs> greg oh yeah that book deal whenever you know, <laughs> uh, but no um doing what i can like i grew up in boys and girls club trying to do stuff to help in that help kids who you know just enjoy the game of basketball which is one of my passions you know i know uh, i've had some downs and ups from basketball but i still love it i'm the guy to watch sports center and game time every day um but also, I'm so happy to be a dad to that beautiful little girl. She is so cute. She's going to be so tall. Yes. She's taller than me when she's in two years when she's five. She's almost there. <laughs> uh, Greg, I want to just thank you so much for coming on and sitting here with me for a really long time and yes. sharing your story and everything. But I, I really do think that it was it is one that needs to be heard especially at this point in your life, because I can tell that you are, you are really entering a new chapter of your life. And that's not to say that there might not be some, there will be ups and there will continue to be downs as everybody's life is. But I really wish you the best. It's, I'm, I'm excited to see what's ahead. Well, thank you for having me. Um,
bringing it for a hug. I feel like that's uh, what it is. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. <laughs> really hope you enjoyed today's best of episodes. Stay tuned as we prepare for season three of the next chapter. Can hardly wait for all of you to dive into this new content coming up. If you're interested in checking out some of the other episodes in the meantime, just visit our show page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And to watch the full version of these interviews, you can head on over to YouTube. Just search for the next chapter with Prim's Ripapat, of course. Subscribe to us, like us, give us a star rating. We really appreciate you listening and showing your support. And also feel free to follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Prim underscore Seripapat. The next chapter with Prim Seripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.